Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I have Dr. Jake Lenarden on the podcast again. I was just looking up when you were last on because it didn't feel like ages ago to me, but I looked it up, it was episode 179 and that was November last year. So basically a year ago now. Uh, so yeah, how, how are things on your end? We're just talking off air, how crazy it all is down in Melbourne for you at the moment. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me on again, Steve. Um, I'm a big fan. And I was thinking about this today, actually, because I, I, I had this in my diary for this podcast today. And I thought, I was wondering how long, and I thought it must be a year by now since we've last um, last caught up. And then funnily enough, it has been. Um, so, which is, which is exciting, but it feels like the year's gone pretty quickly, but slowly yeah. at the same time. Uh, because, you know, where I'm living in Melbourne at the moment, which has gone pretty hectic. And we're talking about where, one of the more crazier lockdowns where we're locked in our house at the moment uh, relative to, to other states in Australia. So it's been, been pretty tough and uh, hopefully get through it soon. And there are many things that I, I need to, um, I want to get done soon. So I think one of them, I was just noticing I desperately need a haircut. Um, so <laughs> I haven't been able to get a haircut just yet. And I was going to try and cut it myself, but I thought I better not risk it um, in case I have to go on something like this. <laughs> and, so I'm, I'm dying to get a haircut. That's probably the thing that I'm missing the most. <laughs> I completely forgot about the whole not being able to get a haircut thing. Charlotte cut my <laughs> hair, I think, two or three times. And it was fine. It just took like hours <laughs> compared to a hairdresser yeah. who does it in like 30 minutes. So Yeah, I'm not, sure I'd, I'm not sure I'd trust anyone just yet to cut my hair. That's not other than a hairdresser. But um, yeah, it's looking pretty shady at the moment. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to doing something with it. <laughs> I know a lot of the listeners can relate to that. And uh, I think the topic, well, as ever uh, for this podcast, people listening are very interested in fat loss, muscle gain, uh, potentially competitors, or at least coaching people like that as well. And an area I think that is becoming more and more well-known is kind of people's relationships with food and that sort of thing and how important that actually is and how uh, physique sports, especially getting to kind of the, the lower amounts of body fat and taking it to stage and being competitive necessitates potentially some not great relationships with food and i think i i mean for me at least i hear the term kind of have a good relationship with food and that sort of thing and i kind of think i know what it means but i'm not sure i really know what it truly means and i'd love to hear from your perspective jake kind of what for you is like when people say a good relationship with food how how would you define that how do you see kind of relationship relationships with food yeah, that, that's an interesting question. And, and the reason why I say that is because we just, um, uh, I'm, I'm part of a, a trial at the moment where we're evaluating a, an intervention designed to um, improve people's relationship with food. So this is highly relevant to the, to the research I'm, I'm currently conducting. And the answer is we actually, we actually don't have a standardised and formal definition of what a healthy relationship with food looks like. And the reason why I say that is because one thing we, we tend to conflate or we should conflate a healthy relationship with food with, I guess, normal eating. Whenever you hear, whenever you talk to people that have um, quote unquote, a bad relationship with food, they always come and they always say, I just want to have a normal relationship with food, which is what I kind of think is what you're getting at in terms of having a healthy relationship with food. And the, the, the key element to this, um, to this statement is that, there is no accepted or standardized definition. It actually means what you want it to mean. With that said, um, 
so when we when we are treating people with an eating disorder or eating problems we're trying to achieve a certain goal that the person or the client is wanting to get out of the specific treatment themselves and what we usually do is we set up a plan for them to work forward so we, we set up a plan for what types of goals or what kinds of characteristics will resemble a healthy relationship uh, with eating and with food to, to themselves so we have some general guidelines that we probe clients with or we probe um, uh, patients with. But the, the important point to realize is that what one person may deem a normal and healthy relationship with food uh, is not the same as what someone else may deem a normal and healthy relationship with food. With that said though, there are certainly some very common characteristics that are shared across many different people when they're talking about a healthy relationship with food. And one of the, a couple of key examples include um, eating a sufficient amount of food throughout the day to allow your body to perform at a, at a, at a, at a, um, at, in a way that performs optimally and, and towards your, your target goals, whether that be uh, concentration or cognitive goals, whether that be sport related goals or social goals, just having the enough energy to perform your basic tasks each day, because we know uh, people who have severe disrupted eating disorders or disordered eating, um, they don't eat enough. They're, they're eating well below what the, what the body needs to function um, optimally. So that's one characteristic is, is eating enough. Another one is, um, is eating uh, regularly throughout the day or eating enough times throughout the day. So the idea is that eating regularly kind of recalibrates those internal cues that people are so often wanting to listen to. Uh, and those internal cues, you've probably heard it thrown around, things like intuitive eating, mindful eating, and stuff like that. They're excellent cues. They're excellent styles of eating that people generally opt for when they're wanting to develop a healthy or normal relationship with food. But the issue is people, people don't know how to get to that goal state. They don't, know how to, they don't know how to train their body to listen to that. So if you've been dieting for 15, 10 years, 20 to 30 years, which is not uncommon, uh, people don't know what actually hunger feels like or what satiety actually feels like. So by allowing yourself a sustained pattern of eating throughout a day, what generally happens is people recalibrate those cues and then they're better informed to act on those cues later on. So that is another characteristic of, of normal eating is eating enough throughout the day to keep those concentration levels up, to keep those energies, energy levels stabilized and to ultimately recalibrate um, uh, our body signals. Other, other examples include not, um, not ex having a, taking a balanced approach to food and eating and not being overly regimented in some of the things that you're doing. So people start to become uh, problematic when they start taking things to the extreme. So I am um, I am someone who kind of values autonomy and, and people who decide to go one way or the other, that's certainly fine. And some people decide, they feel that they get a lot of structure through logging their food and logging how much they eat. That's fine. The problem arises when people take that to the extreme and they start being really inflexible, start being really rigid, to the point where they're actually excluding many of the things that they find joy from or that they enjoy eating. So whole food groups, for example. So eliminating carbohydrates, even though you, um, even though it's having a detrimental impact on your physical, psychological, and social well-being, um, then that becomes a problem. So what we want to do for those people 
is shift the focus towards a more balanced or a flexible or a graded approach that becomes more inclusive with the types of food they eat, the amount they eat, uh, and, and essentially when they eat. So they're just some very common and broad categories we can think of when we're talking about um, migrating someone who has a disordered relationship, moving them towards someone who has a more normal or a healthier or a, um, or, or, or a sustainable relationship with food. So they're the, they're the crux of the things. And I'll be, I like to think of them as the superordinate construct, so they're, they're the top of the hierarchy. And then below that, when you get down the pyramid, uh, there are many more specific characteristics that underpin that that we can work towards as well. But they're the broad things that we're usually talking about. I really like that because I think that does encapsulate uh, it kind of puts words towards what I try and develop with clients where I am looking at their eating and I'm trying to be like, I ask them kind of digging questions where it's like, how does that make you feel? Like, um, are you, do you feel stressed over your eating? Kind of that, that sort of, that's what I'm trying to get at because it's really difficult to have like hard and light, hard and fast rules where there will be people probably listening and they think, oh, a good relationship with food means you never need to track your food. But you've kind of mentioned there that, well, you can track your food but you need that that needs to be like a non-stressful thing where you're inclusive and uh, where it supports kind of your daily tasks and what you're trying to do and uh, i i really like that it, it's kind of one of those things where it's not a really specific definition but it, it can't be because it's quite individual to the person and how they kind of find their relationship with food and yeah it's like everyone has like their own relationship in a sense <laughs> Yeah, and, and you don't want to be trying to copy other people. So if you're someone who is really trying to improve their, their eating habits uh, in terms of from a mental health perspective, um, you don't want to start comparing to other people because then that can get into a grey zone because we don't actually have enough data on other people to kind of uh, mimic what they're doing. So what we actually usually, what we end up usually doing, it's a very un fair comparison because we're trying to what's what may seemingly look from the outside as, a, as someone having a really healthy relationship with food um, in the in the midst of things and, and in private we actually don't know how they think and how they behave so it's a common trap people get into when they're trying to say right that to me what that person is doing that is what I want to achieve and aspire to and what we always try to do is we say no we don't want you to focus on that it's more unique to your circumstances and you want to you want to be guided in a way that suits your personal lifestyle and if logging or tracking your food intake is something that's not causing you distress not causing you harm or any other problematic behaviors or or obsessive thoughts if it's actually providing you structure and and routine to your day and it's not impacting your social relationships so we know people who are obsessive trackers um, they won't go out for dinner at a restaurant in fear that they don't know what's being put yeah. into the, 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 the chicken salads that they're getting, for example. Um, so if it's not impacting or impairing your day-to-day -day functioning and activity, then that is actually a healthy and normal relationship. So that's something you want to keep going and sustain with because it's actually contributing to your well-being better or, or to, a, to a point that is healthy and uh, healthy. So you want, to, you want to keep that on task. Obviously, that example, you don't want to be tracking for the rest of your life. Um, but if that's something that you find works for you in this moment, then it's worth sticking with that and persisting with it for a period of time. And then you can slowly wean off the tracking behavior, for example, because people, people tend to lose it once they feel like they've, 
they're stopping tracking immediately because it's so ingrained in their belief system that they must log and it's so automatic. And as soon as you take that away, then all, all hell breaks loose. And we want to prevent that from happening by taking a graded approach. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's one of those where I've certainly had it where if talking to people, if they weren't to have the, the tracking gives them kind of almost like a bit of a training wheels where they could go out and navigate a meal out. Whereas if you take that completely away, they're like, I don't even want to eat out because I have no idea what any of that stuff is. Whereas they feel like if they can somehow estimate it or something like that, they're kind of like, I can accept that that's something that's productive towards everything I'm trying to do. And they feel much less stressed by doing so. Whereas there's people who are completely opposite who, if they were to try and track or think about a meal out, they just, they don't even want to have to consider the kind of logging it or anything along those lines. So it's, it's just really bringing to the floor how broad of a definition kind of a relationship with food is and i don't to me it sounds like potentially the crux of it is kind of the the stress and anxiety and how you feel like i guess in a relationship you want to feel good so if you feel good with your relationship uh, and it doesn't cause problems in your life that's ultimately what a good relationship should come to to be yeah no absolutely so people people usually lack the insight towards what is working for them and what's not working for them so they don't um, generally speaking, people don't take the time to think about uh, which behaviours are actually contributing well to my to my quality of life and to my well-being, and which behaviours, thoughts, and emotions are actually being quite detrimental. So people need to first, before embarking on their journey towards uh, developing this normal or healthy relationship, the first thing that we we need to do, and this is for everyone, is to really take a moment to think about all of the particular triggers that are contributing to your problem eating behaviors or patterns. And once you are able to identify those particular triggers, um, then you can work towards uh, addressing them or eliminating them. So if you find if someone, um, and, and that's in the form of self-monitoring. So, you know, whenever I uh, develop a, a program or an intervention um, for problem eating behavior, always the first session in that program is self-monitoring and logging your behavior, your thoughts and your feelings. I understand people people cringe at that because it sounds kind of corny. Why would I want to write down all this stuff about how I'm feeling? I get that, but it, it serves a fundamental element towards treatment for eating-related problems because it allows you to drill in on the very specific and precise thoughts, feelings and emotion, uh, thoughts, feelings and behaviors that are making things worse for you and once you're able to drill down on those specific things then you can work towards eliminating them or addressing them or modifying them and if you know if you, if calorie tracking for example or calorie logging whatever uh, exercise logging if if you identify that that is actually having not any negative impact on you at all it's not contributing to anything problematic then there's no reason why that should be eliminated at this point in time. So taking a moment to reflect on what's going on in your life and, and drilling down on those specific factors that are that are causing you to have these really unhealthy behaviours, uh, that is the first step needed towards uh, sustainable kind of improvements and recovery down the track. And it will always differ from person to person. Not everyone will have different triggers and setbacks. That's why we always work on an individual basis where um, we, we, we try to personalize the element of intervention as much as possible uh, in order to maximize outcomes. Yeah, I, I really like that. And I 
I know in your you had a free ebook that was out, and mm-hmm. I highly recommend people check this out because it just gives you a really people I think feel like I, there were things in there that I felt like I knew, but it wasn't in such a format and a way of understanding it and put into words and ways that I was like, ah, oh, now that I I kind of know that, but this gives me kind of a route to go down, and that self monitoring was really great, mm-hmm. and you kind of described it as being a detective uh, with your clients, so you can identify kind of what and look at all the potential things that could be leading to it. And kind of focus down on some and i think that was just it's just a great process to be that reflexive and think about what's happened in your day and it, whilst you like you said people don't like to do it but oftentimes it's the things we don't like to do that's probably going to help us yeah, the most exactly cool yeah no exactly and and, and the, the important element is uh is, is is trying to explain the reasons why we do things in a way that people can really resonate with and understand so a lot of the times uh, when we, a lot of the times when we read books or self-help articles or self-help manuals, uh, there's a lot of psychological jargon that is, that tends to be spit out, and that automatically kind of turns people off a little bit. They because they they don't want to read jargon. They want to they want to be able to. Um, uh, it needs to be some way that can be personally identifiable to the self. And I appreciate you 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 reading that um, ebook and 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 kind of. Uh, advocating for it because yeah that that was the purpose of that is to try to really get it into a palatable form to help people overcome these particular issues and um, it's been a little bit of a success so far which has been great to 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 um to share yeah I think I mean I maybe say you'd um you may even understate the value a book like that could have because I think for some people that could be the difference between kind of stopping an eating disorder occurring because now they've got something they can utilize straight away and kind of nip it in the bud whereas if they did didn't have anything I don't know years down the line they could be coming to you being in a a really terrible position yeah that's a hundred percent and that's the purpose of these particular self-help approaches is that Rather than if you've if you're able to spot the problem early, rather than going to a psychologist or a psychiatrist or someone who who is quite expensive and they only have there are limited number of resources available out there, long wait lists. The best approach that we usually advocate for is a self help approach first up, meaning that people should try to overcome the problem themselves. And if after a little bit of a sustained period of time, let's just say a month or two. They realise that hey, this isn't actually working for me. I need some professional support. Um, then what usually happens is then they go on to see that uh, particular professional face to face. So that is actually beneficial not only to the person because because it can save an, an enormous amount of money uh, financially, uh, but it's also a real benefit to the healthcare system as well because it means that not all of these people are rushing towards the, the, the finite resources that we have in the healthcare system. So if we're able to kind of um, funnel down the process by helping all these people with free online resources, then only the ones who really need the care will go and see that psychiatrist or that psychologist because there's really good evidence to show that self-help approaches, they um, lead to recovery rates of around 35 to 40% which is, it's okay, like it's not great, but it's still decent. And there's actually evidence showing that self-help approaches are uh, particularly guided approaches where there's someone trying to guide you through the program a little bit. They're just as effective as face-to-face psychotherapy or, or, or psychological treatments as well. So it's an excellent cost-effective approach that I think 
many people should capitalize on. But the problem is that there's so much information out there, it's hard to trust who's a, a reliable and, uh, and valid resource. Uh, so that is also a big problem that we're finding in, in the field as well is how do the popula general population who are struggling with these issues, how do they go and find the correct resource? And that's what, that's what the platform that um, I'm designing is trying to kind of do. It's trying to provide a tool to point people towards credible sources and directions uh, because there are some sources out there that are dreadful. Wow. <laughs> I've seen a couple um, on Instagram that this, this person, I won't name names, but they, um, they were promoting uh, this particular nutrient supplement and that they, the claim was that it, was, it, would be a, it would accelerate the cure for anorexia nervosa, wow. which, but, which um, uh, for your information, is the hardest, one of the hardest psychiatric disorders to treat. And this person had a following of 60,000 people just saying that take this supplement, it will benefit anorexia nervosa. Uh, it took me all my might to not comment on it um, and and kind of spread my thoughts. But yeah, it, we need to we need to navigate a system better that would allow people to evaluate the credibility of sources available um, online and, and free to the public. Yeah, I think I literally checked your Instagram recently and it was up at 30,000 followers now. And I was like, that's a lot more than I last remember seeing it. So massive credit yeah. to you. It's, if people it's aren't following um, who are listening, yeah, I recommend well, we, it. We get, yeah, no, we, uh, like people like yourself uh, share it, which is excellent. And there was no expectation that this was going to uh, take off. But, but it did. I think the Instagram has been running for maybe 15 months now, maybe a little bit longer. Um, yeah, and it's, and it's reached a great following and, and it's good because, you know, it's, it's providing, um, I hope, <laughs> uh, credible um, pieces of information about th this issue that is so pervasive in modern society, which is, um, that's the goal of it. It's just to disseminate information so that people are better equipped at, at dealing with these particular issues yeah. and along the journey get, get to meet awesome people like yourself and many others who I've done podcasts with and it's been um it's been a, a real team effort and I think I think the the tide is is turning a little bit uh in in terms of there was there is still a, a large degree of stigma associated with mental health but I do feel like um it's starting to slowly shift over time which is great uh because people shouldn't be ashamed of of any mental health issues because it's just normal it's part of life hey yeah. pascal here i just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site inside you'll find a thriving forum an extensive exercise library courses presentations and research reviews all i need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up see you there yeah and that's just because people are listening and they're like i want to find this as so break dot binge eating isn't it on Instagram. Yeah, break dot binge dot eating. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I think it's the the reason I'm like I love having you on, Jake, and I love sharing your stuff there is because at least I feel like uh, for a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast, a lot of the people who potentially follow me are those who could use these self help methods or potentially use some of the self help with their clients who haven't formed 
uh, eating disorder because that obviously uh, just a coach who hasn't got the kind of it's not in their scope of practice to help them with that but potentially they could prevent that so it's amazing to be able to kind of listen to this and they can't maybe now think about it and they're like oh, I can kind of brought like have these discussions now with my clients and hopefully prevent any of these kind of poor relationships developing over time so it's it's amazing that you can be on here and discuss this and you are disseminating that kind of information for us all because without it i think uh, there's kind of that ignorance to it all and i think that's probably where a large part of the problem can ensue yeah 100 percent agree with you and the the the, the intervention elements or strategies are, are, are great in that it, it serves both as a prevention and a treatment approach so the same elements generally cut across a prevention and treatment focus. So it, it, it would be wise for people who are dealing with uh, particularly um, personal trainers, for example, who may not have expertise in, in mental health or, or how to deal with mental health problems. Um, I would dare say that a lot of personal trainers' clients would have issues with their body image, their eating and all, and all that. So the, the beauty of these, these self-help approaches is that anyone can learn them. Anyone can learn them. And if you are a coach who is dealing with someone uh, who shows the signs and symptoms of something problematic, then you can guide them through healthier patterns of eating that aren't incompatible with what you're trying to achieve with them. But I think that's an important point there because there's a misconception uh, that it, that all of the intervention strategies for eating disorders um, go they stand in direct contrast to what a personal trainer may be instilling in their clients. That's not necessarily the case. There are many things like self-monitoring, as I talked about, that could be implemented as a coach with a client, uh, logging not only food behaviours but also attitudes and, and emotions around food, uh, things like regular and structured eating as well. So we know that um, people who have really bad relationships with food, they generally skip meals sometimes because they've overeaten at one meal, uh, they graze or they pick throughout the day. A coach can implement, right, we're going to implement a pattern of regular eating where we're going to be eating every three hours, um, breakfast, mid-morning snack, lunch, afternoon snack, blah, blah. Uh, and and that, that is possible to implement. So all I'm trying to say is that if there's any coaches or someone who has clients that are dealing with these issues you are certainly it is learning the, the self-help strategies for eating disorders particularly a cbt based approach is not incompatible for the most part with what you're trying to instill in your clients uh, so i think that's an important element and you would be a vastly in my perspective i might be a little bit biased but if you did learn these you would be a vastly better coach and you'd be doing a much better duty of care to your clients if you were able to have some rudimentary training in mental health whether that just be going and online researching skills and techniques that are available and just being familiar with it that's a basic training i'm not talking about a formalized or a formal qualification i'm just talking about being aware of what works and what doesn't work for these particular uh, populations I think would be important for people who are listening and is and is and are thinking about that kind of approach yeah I, I completely agree I think uh, a lot of especially with online coaching being around it's like you're and I guess this is where the personal trainer stands above the apps because we can actually 
think about mental health and we are talking yeah. to an individual so we can actually help people even more in that sense and uh, something you kind of touched on and something I think is really important to touch on is also potentially talking about like a good relationship with your body then uh, like what is kind of a I guess in, in the same way it's probably going to be a nondescript uh, kind of way of describing it in terms of a good relationship with your own body and self because again we're actively trying to change that oftentimes as a, a kind of an online coach or a personal trainer uh, but we want to be careful that we're not kind of getting into that position where we're encouraging poor relationships in that sense yeah so body image is, is central to all of these eating difficulties or eating disorders so a poor body image is what usually drives an eating disorder. It's, it's where it kind of starts. Uh, we know that poor body image is, is probably the most robust risk factor for the development of an eating disorder, but it's also one of the strongest maintaining factors, which just basically means a, a variable that keeps the eating disorder going. So uh, if we're trying to prevent an eating disorder or disordered eating from happening in the first place, we want to, um, we want to address negative body image. And if we're trying to treat an eating disorder, we also want to address negative body image. So the two go hand in hand. Um, so there's two different classes of, of constructs or, uh, yeah, let's call them constructs. There's two different classes of constructs that we deal with with body image. We've got negative body image and we've got positive body image. And an important thing to note is that the two, they do not represent opposite ends of the continuum. So we usually think that negative body image is here and positive body images here on the one pole. It's actually not the case. There's been a lot of evidence kind of disproving that. And positive body image is actually qualitatively distinct from negative body image. Let's talk a little bit about negative body image first. So negative body image is a extremely broad category or construct. So it's the superordinate category and under that uh, include many different facets of negative body image. And some facets of negative body image include um, the, the, the most relevant one would be for eating disorders is what we call an overvaluation of body weight and shape. So that just basically means uh, when someone equates their self-worth or their self-esteem on the basis of what they weigh or, or what they look like. So their self-esteem is intertwined with their body image. That's a, that's a problem because it means that people, uh, their entire worth as a person is, is contingent upon their, their body image. If they feel that they're failing as a person in, in body image, it means that they're a, they're a failure as a person. So that's, the, that's the, one of the big components of body image we usually see or negative body image. We've got other ones like general dissatisfaction. So general dissatisfaction is just simply referring to an unhappiness or discontent with one's body weight or shape. Uh, it's just got some negative attitudes towards that. We've got things like preoccupation. That's when someone consistently ruminates or thinks obsessively about their body image. So what does it look like at the moment? Um, do, did I put on weight after I ate that particular carbohydrate meal? They're just regularly and recurring uh, thoughts about their body image. We've got things like feeling fat as well, which is when uh, people have a somatic sensation that they're carrying more body weight than they actually are. So feeling fat is actually uncorrelated with person's BMI, suggesting wow. that it's not being actually fat or overweight or, or obese or have whatever category you want to kind of call it, uh, that is irrelevant to the experience of feeling fat, which is really, really interesting. And uh, we've got some other thing, other ones like um, um, uh, fear of weight gain, which is an obsessive, unhealthy fear, uh, short-term weight gain in the future. So we've got those negative 
negative body image constructs on one hand, and then we've got these positive body image constructs on the other hand. And positive body image include things like um, uh, body image appreciation, which is kind of showing respect and care for one's body. We've got functionality appreciation, which is uh, trying to focus on what the body can do and, and all of the impressive capabilities it, it can perform rather than merely what it looks like. And uh, various other things as well, like body image flexibility, uh, which includes uh, things like not acting on negative body image threats, so embracing them and, not, and, and moving forward in, in a way consistent with your core values. So all I'm trying to say is that there are, there are broad categories of negative and positive body image. And what, if we're trying to help someone get a quote unquote healthy relationship with their body, what we need to do is simultaneously uh, uh, tackle or address the negative elements. So we want to reduce negative body image. And at the same time, we want to promote a positive body image. So there's the, the intervention strategies or elements that can effectively target negative body image do not necessarily translate to an increase in positive body image. So that means what we need is two sets of intervention strategies, one designed to tackle or eliminate negative body image, and one designed to, to boost or improve someone's positive body image. Um, so I'm not sure um, I, it would take the whole podcast to, to talk about specific strategies designed to target each of them, but there are numerous things we can implement. I'm not sure if you want me to go into some specifics, um, but there are, there are several things that we can do to, to boost someone's uh, body image. Um, if, if, yeah, if, if that's something that you wanted to keep going with, um, yeah. more than happy to offer. I think it's, I think a lot of people listening to that will be able to identify a lot of those within themselves or within clients. Like I was listening through it and I was like, yeah, like just nodding my head in that, Again, it's things that I've definitely seen and thought about, but haven't put actual kind of categories to or words towards, which I think is really cool. So just as an example, oftentimes, particularly kind of evidence-based physique coaches will talk about shifting your mindset from kind of being a physique kind of orientated athlete to being performance-based in the off-season. So there is less focus on the physique and you derive value more so from your performance and kind of focusing on what kind of green grass you've got now rather than kind of the grass is greener on the other side um but yeah i'd love to hear if there's any kind of ones that stick out to you that may be specific or more specific towards a physique competitor that you found to be helpful absolutely so i think the one that would be most relevant to a physique competitor would be addressing this over evaluation of body weight and shape so just to recap it refers to when someone intertwines their self-worth with their, their physique basically uh, and, and it's an issue. There, there are a couple of reasons why this construct is an issue. The first reason that it's a it's a direct it's directly related to many harmful forms of, of eating. It directly um, quote unquote causes uh, an inflexible dietary restraint tendencies, and it's it's a direct um, uh, link to obsessive body checking and avoidance. So the first reason why it's problematic is because it's linked to all these other problems. So if we're able to tackle the overvaluation, what generally happens is the other problems generally reduce as a consequence. Uh, also, I said a little bit earlier that, um, that when we're basing our self-esteem or self-worth on, on, based on our physique, and if we feel like we're not doing particularly well in that moment in our physique, then we conclude that we're a bad person. That gives us evidence that we probably need to change and shift the mindset. 
So there are a couple of ways to address this over-concern or over-evaluation with Wayne Jake. The first one is to increase the importance of other life domains. Um, so if you think about it, just, present, just pretend what we usually do in cognitive behavioural therapy is someone who, who has this over-evaluation, we get them to think about a pie chart, a pie chart with a circle, and we, we say to them, this pie chart represents your sphere of self-worth, of, of who you are as a person, what you, how you evaluate who you are, who Steve is as a person. I want you to split up the chart into many different elements of your life and give weight to the certain elements of the pie chart. So what we usually see with people with severe distorted um, body image perceptions and severe disordered eating behaviours, uh, around one half to three quarters or even more of their pie chart represents their physique or their body weight or shape. So a quarter or maybe a half of their pie chart represents all the other domains in life. So things like their family, their, their relationships, uh, their sporting achievements, their educational um, capabilities, all these other things, right? So what we need to do is we need to reduce the importance of, of shape and weight by promoting these other areas of life to get more self-esteem from. So the easiest element is to, um, is to beef up these other domains of life. So what we usually do is we say, we, we teach people to develop more hobbies. And it sounds crazy, but the purpose of that is it allows people to have more judgments of self-worth. So when people get really immersed in a particular hobby, they get invested. So if you start taking up, let's just say, for example, um, um, gaming, right? I don't know. I just use that on the top of my head. You're, you're taking up gaming where you are so immersed in it to the point where you become really, really good. You're competitive. You are challenging other or other really good gamers as well. So when you start winning at these video games, what generally happens is your sense of self-worth inflates a little bit. And that piece of the pie generally expands a little bit and it reduces the over-evaluation and instead shifts it backwards and then that sphere now occupies the gaming part of the arena. So the point is not to get you into all these different hobbies. The point is to increase the methods by which you evaluate yourself as a person. And whatever way that may be, people love video games, people love taking up running, for example, or cycling or something like that. Anything that allows you to increase the value of who you are as a person will eventually increase that, that small part of the pie and decrease the, the elements of that shape and weight over-evaluation. And it's not an overnight fix, which is an important point. It takes many, many weeks, if not months, to shift that perspective a little bit. The more repetition, it's just simple behaviour therapy principles. The more repetition you do, the more you get reinforced, the more that pie chart moves a little bit forward. So that's the most obvious way we usually do. We try to bolster people's other life domains so that they can start evaluating themselves. The other direct method is directly targeting the over-evaluation. So we wanna reduce that. Rather than, rather than increase the, the portions of the other part of the pie, we wanna directly reduce that over-evaluation. And the empirically supported ways to do that is we need to target the expressions of the over-evaluation. So to put this in simpler terms, the over-evaluation is a construct that doesn't exist. It's a psychological construct that doesn't exist. It's just something that we've named because we observe certain behaviours that stem from this over-evaluation. 
two critical behaviors that occur as a result of overvaluation of weight and shape is body checking. So obsessive and repetitive body checking. So when people weigh themselves three times a day, um, where they stare in front of a mirror six times a day, they're just looking at all their different body shapes, whether their biceps have increased, whatever. And also body image avoidance, which is the complete opposite where people refuse to look at their body weight or shape at all. So what we need to do is they represent different ends of the continuum. What we need to do is bring everything back to normal and to a happy medium. And the way in which we do that is um, a couple of different ways. One is via exposure related interventions. So if someone is avoiding their body image at all costs, what we usually try to get the person to do is expose themselves to the feared body image situations or concerns that they're about. So that is literally going in front of a mirror and just trying to talk in more neutral terms about their body rather than trying to criticize it at all times. Again, with enough repetition, that has actually been shown to reduce body image avoidance. Um, And with obsessive weight checking, well, we just need to decrease the frequency with which we weigh ourselves or the frequency with which we check our body weight and shape. Um, Again, that's not easier said than done, and that would probably take a whole podcast in and of itself. But my point is that if you're able to address the obsessive checking and avoidance behaviors, then that's one way you can get into that over-evaluation of weight and shape and reduce its impact on subsequent disordered eating patterns. Long-winded answer, I know, but uh, it does require a lot of effort and sustained concentration and practice. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. No, I I really love it because again, you're talking through things where I definitely think a lot of competitors or people who've gone through kind of extreme fat loss or uh, coaches as well will be able to just kind of see these things because it's very much like maybe the goal of the competitions moved at, moved at the end of the the contest prep and now it's like well i derived all my value from that show yeah. and how i looked and now that's all removed from me because now i'm adding body fat and i don't have that goal in front of me and then they ignore how they look and they just try and get away from it ultimately they're really unhappy about how they're looking in, in an unhealthy place and i think a lot of the time coaches are now being wise to trying to transition that and trying to find kind of value and self-worth from other things so like i would never like to tell someone like i'm steve the bodybuilder like uh, it's just even that makes me cringe like that's my life isn't about bodybuilding because there's so many other things i derive value from life which i think is really important for me because i've definitely gone too far and deep into various things like i can remember times i was just like pinching body fat on myself like through the day and kind of yeah weighing yourself multiple times through the day i've also had that and uh, it's kind of just being aware that these kind of things can happen with clients too because i've had it where like some people do drive too much value into how much they weigh um, and kind of obviously kind of they want to be a specific number on the scale and that's not really ultimately what's important so i love these strategies that you're talking about but i also understand that they aren't a quick fix and i think that again like everything kind of physique body composition wise takes consistency long-term adherence and effort towards them so uh, no i think it's a really valuable discussion and i don't know if you found anything kind of how how do you yeah, I don't know where, where I'm trying to go here, but it it's just a, a super challenging thing, I think, for a lot of people. Um, mm. Is there a certain timeline you think 
kind of most people require for this transition? So yeah, that's a, that's a tough one, and and the answer, the, the quick answer is um, there's no there's no answer. It all depends on individual circumstances. So we usually we usually tackle these ingrained beliefs and problems towards the end of a treatment protocol, uh, during the initial stages and the middle stages of, of treatment. What we usually do is we focus directly on behaviour change, um, more so than than this ingrained cognitions or belief system. And what we usually find is that um, uh, tackling behaviour change early and straight away, so trying to address these really inflexible dietary patterns that people have, trying to quickly eliminate or reduce the frequency of binge eating and getting people to better handle stressful or, or adverse situations and, and teaching them a broader range of um, uh, coping mechanisms that generally has a little bit of a flow-on effect towards this, these extreme concerns about weight and shake that I was talking about. So to the point where, think about it as like, um, you know, it's, in a, it's, it's in a boxing match, right? And you've, you, you're fighting your opponent and the opponent is this, this belief system that we have. The first opponent comes on and significantly weakens this, this, this opponent. The, the first, sorry, the first boxer comes on, really weakens this ingrained belief system punches it, you know, knocks it flying to the point that the second fighter comes on and then they're the ones that take the final blow. So it's really, it's weakened considerably earlier on and towards the end stages, we can then knock out, use the knockout blow to then attack that, um, that extreme belief system. And there are those strategies that we generally use. So it's, it's a peculiar type of issue that we're talking about because all of the symptoms are interrelated to each other, which is a good thing. It's a good thing because it means that if I'm able to address one symptom, then another symptom, it's like a, think about a um, dominoes, then the other symptom yeah. will fall down as well. So that's a, that's a, it's a good thing to think about because it means that we can focus our attention towards earlier things and that will have a good effect later on. But if you're talking, you know, for your population that, that usually listen to this podcast, just to be as simple as possible, if you're a physique competitor and you're struggling with this and you want to kind of make healthier improvements, um, take up powerlifting because the great thing about powerlifting, it completely shifts the focus from physique to performance. Yeah. And that is what we're actually trying to talk about. We're trying to shift the mindset away from obsessing or ruminating about your physique and moving towards something that's performance-based. So getting personal bests on your lifts each session or, or whatever. Um, you're actually if you get a personal best at your gym session, then I couldn't, I couldn't imagine the amount of self-worth you would get from that um, because you've just done something that is in, an incredible accomplishment to you. So it's as simple as that, as, as shifting to a different element of that sport. I would dare say, correct me if I'm wrong, but I dare say that, I don't know, do powerlifters care about their physique much? Or is that, because I, I feel like that they just want to get, this is a massive overgeneralization, but they just want to get bulky and strong. Is that right? Or? That, that is definitely the kind of, uh, what's it called? The, the general perception of powerlifters, yeah. at least. Like you see the memes and everything and it's just like, yeah. I don't care, I just want to be big and bulky. And I think there's definitely some powerlifters that would relate to that. And there's probably some that would be like, no, I, 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 like I'm in good shape, like <laughs> whatever. But yeah, for sure, it's, it's a, you're kind of scored on performance completely and not scored on why like they couldn't care less how you look under there. Just you're in your weight category, you lift your lift, you get your kind of three white flags or lights rather, and you're good to go. So 
yeah, I, I can I can completely see that. And I think that's probably why it's kind of fallen out of popularity of late, I think. But there was a few years ago where that was a really popular move where in the off season, that's what a lot of bodybuilders would do. But I think now at least maybe they're not shifting to powerlifting as much because they realize that's maybe not congruent with their overall bodybuilding aims, but they're definitely focusing on performance. And something I was thinking about was how kind of even down to for me as a coach, when I'm putting someone through a gaining period where they're focusing on performance and you know, kind of gaining muscle and maybe body composition is going to be looking worse. I just look at that way less often. So it might be every month at most that we ever check the physique and uh, I kind of don't want them. And you see people who are taking like weekly check-in photos in their like uh, bodybuilding suit or whatever they're going to be wearing. And I, I can't help but think that that's an over-obsession with that kind of how you're looking and then it's the same with maybe social media and posting on there are regularly like shredded shots and you feel like you can't ever escape that. Mm -hmm. And I think, well, social media could be a whole podcast in itself, but I'm sure you've had, you've seen potentially social media, I guess, how do you see it? Do you see it as mostly a pro or do you see it mostly as a negative or is there just a, a bit of both? Um, there's a, there's a big body of literature uh, documenting uh, associations between social media usage and extreme body image concerns and disordered eating patterns. But a, a big problem with the literature at the moment uh, on this space, and, and I'll preface it by saying that this isn't my area. I've just, I, I vaguely know a little bit about body image and social media, um, but a lot of it is is cross-sectional based, uh, meaning that uh, people at one time point examined social media usage via retrospective recall, and they assessed their body image um, and eating behaviour symptoms or disorder symptoms at the same time. And then what you, we usually find is that there's a correlation between the two, meaning that, that the more social media people use, uh, and particularly the, the, the types of accounts that they follow uh, is associated with more body image problems and, and more eating disorder symptoms. I do think that there's been a couple of experimental studies that have manipulated um, the type of social media content someone would be exposed to. And I'm fairly certain that there has been causal links between um, viewing, for example, Fitspiration-related hashtags and, and images and more body image concerns. Uh, but I do, I, I do think that the effect sizes are quite small um, meaning that there's not actually a huge, it's not actually a very powerful immediate trigger, um, immediate trigger to body image problems. Uh, I, I hypothesize or predict that it would have much more of a sustained effect over time, a more cumulative effect. But the more that we view this stuff over time, it kind of builds up towards our body image concerns and our body image problems. Um, but yeah, there's certainly a, a huge body of literature on social media and, and body image. And I'm actually doing a study at the moment. Um, uh, it's funny you say this because I have, I've been interested in this, but I've never actually done any research on it. So I'm actually doing a, a follow-up study now where I'm tracking people over a year and I'm, I'm actually looking at their social media usage as well as their body image. And I want to have a look at whether increases in usage um, prospectively predict eating disorder um, symptoms and, and body oh. concerns over time, whether there's a reciprocal relationship. So meaning that people who are, the, 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 the more usage of let's say Fitspiration predicts more concerns about their body. And then those more concerns predict even more usage of, of Fitspiration because it's even driving the, the desire to even achieve even further. So that's what I'm trying to hope to uncover. Um, uh, we just started the study, so it's still 12 months away. 
but um, I think it's really interesting and it's, it's a highly relevant topic. It has a direct practical and clinical implications yeah. and it's something that I'm certainly interested in and, and I, I hope to move towards a little bit over the next five years, I think. No, that's that's amazing. I think, yeah, social media is becoming people are more and more aware of potentially the negatives that are associated with it because i think people just assume oh it's just this thing that i use and it's free or whatever and it's like ah you're kind of being manipulated in ways and it's having impacts that you don't even realize i i talk about it regularly where i'm like on social media you're seeing kind of the creme de la creme like you're seeing the top physiques the most shredded the most beautiful because that's what gets the likes that's what gets the follows and so they're going to be the ones that pop you up in your feed and not the average guys and the average journeys. So I often try and draw that back with people, at least on my channel, uh, to be like, just to spread some awareness. And I think that kind of, you're seeing those accounts now having kind of, I don't know, the females who are showing off their cellulite and you're having the, the guys who are like, I don't know, sitting over and they're like, I've got roles here. I'm not always kind of picture perfect. Uh, do you think that's kind of a good, I guess you don't know yet because you haven't done the research, but do you think that's probably a positive thing to kind of share the, both sides of the coin, not just like the picture perfect. Absolutely. And then there is research that has been done on, on the protective role of social media and, and these, these positive uh, body image, uh, whatever you want to call it, the more realistic uh, content that is presented in, in body image that, that almost challenges uh, overtly challenges the, 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 the belief that social media is, a representation of real life so these accounts or these pages that try to challenge that belief and promoting those things like you talked about like the roles if you're sitting down um, that actually has been shown to have a positive effect on people's body image so again small effect size uh, it's not a be all cure be all and end all cure um, but it, it, it shows promise and, and what it suggests is that we can we can use this element or this strategy of of increasing our exposure towards these positive accounts, we can use that amongst a collection of different tools to kind of have that really big flow on effect um, because no, no treatment strategy in isolation is enough. What we need is we need a constellation of different strategies that work in tandem to produce a desired outcome and the social media let's call it social media literacy, where people are more aware of and, and are being exposed to, to the, the better aspects of social media. By throwing that into our, constella um, uh, our constellation of different uh, therapeutic elements, then that I think will have a definitely a positive benefit. Um, so I, yeah, I, I certainly encourage, the evidence behind it is good. So if you're feeling particularly negative about your body image, uh, and you need a bit of a pick-me-up or something like that, then then brief exposure is something that can have some temporary uh, alleviation of negative symptoms. So, um, yeah, I certainly think it's worthwhile to to invest in some accounts that you find realistic and, and desirable and, and something like that, for sure. Yeah, I think it's one of those now, at least there is the the block button and the algorithm works in a way if you like the accounts that are building you up and providing you positive reinforcement, you should be showing those accounts more. And it's challenging, I think, is because a lot of the, you mentioned that 60,000 follower account, but the accounts with like 500,000, like 100,000, lots of like these fit chicks and these guys with just like clearly enhanced and the photos are photoshopped. And it's just, 
I guess the human body is driven to like extremes and these extreme looks and everything. And so they're always going to get the likes and things. But if people are at least educating themselves a little bit more and hopefully listening to this, just going through like what we've gone through here, you get to a stage where you're just essentially in control. Like you have autonomy, like the, the food doesn't control you. The scale doesn't control you. Your look doesn't control how you feel you're in control of those elements. Uh, it takes a long time. And I, I hope personally I'm getting better there and more towards that. And I try and get to this point with clients. So they just feel empowered to be like, I kind of, I know who I am. I know what I like to do to get these things. And I can kind of do everything in as like, I know the pros and cons of everything that I'm trying to do here. It's just having that kind of almost that education behind everything before you, I think a lot of the problems come where people jump in at the deep end and there's people taking on like kids taking on social media and they're exposed to all these beautiful people. And they're like, what's wrong with me than using all the filters and things and same with food. And uh, it's, it's kind of quickly become a nightmare. <laughs> so I'm glad, so glad we're having this discussion right here. No, no, I a hundred percent agree. And I think it's just a, I think it goes in every domain of life. You don't want to throw yourself in the deep end to anything. You need to you need to gradually build up so then you can uh, be equipped to deal with the situation that you've got at hand. And I think many of the principles that we're talking about here go with with many different facets or domains of life. And and you can never I've never heard anyone say too much education or too much knowledge is a bad thing. So. Um, if you're someone who is driven, motivated, wants to wants to really excel, if, if we're talking about people in the fitness industry, for example, if you want to really excel at your job and and you know develop develop a really strong reputation, not only on social media but you know, throughout the community, then equipping yourself with these various types of skills, not just the the expertise in the how to perform the perfect squat, for example. You want to branch out and be like, right, I have some knowledge in in in, um, in psychology or mental health. I have some knowledge in biology. I have some knowledge in sociology, whatever. I think that would serve um, you much better than if you decided to neglect those important domains of, of human functioning. Yeah, it's, it's actually crazy to think that kind of, I guess, such a being a personal trainer is a relatively easy i would say occupation to come into in that it's not kind of crazy the amount of work you have to do to get there and uh it's kind of obviously you have to go through some sort of qualification and things but it's not like a phd level and then you can but impact people's lives to a huge degree mm. without ever and in uh, the personal training qualifications i've done they don't talk you through mental health and kind of the psychology behind things so yeah i think that's incredibly well said and i think that is more so coming to the forefront thanks to people like yourself uh i'd love if people want to learn more i know kind of obviously we've mentioned your instagram um kind of if, if there's any even books or any courses or things you particularly recommend jake i think that would be really valuable to the audience as well Yes. Yeah, so, so if you're interested in, in my work, particularly, so I, as we mentioned a bit earlier, the Instagram handle of break binge eating and the website, uh, the break binge eating website that we have is the comprehensive. That's where all the content is put in terms of articles, um, resources, the ebook that we spoke about um, screeners to see so screeners for determining your, your level of, of symptoms uh, so we've actually automated it in a way where people receive feedback. So just kind of examples about how to find out more information. But um, 
if if I diverge from my things for my my work at the moment, I think um, if you're interested in, in books, I I am a big advocate of um, the author of his name is is Chris Fairburn. So he's a uh, he was one of the pioneers in this field, and and I did my PhD directly um, related to his research and. Uh, he he's been a, an amazing contributor to this field, and everything basically I talk about uh, is is his kind of work. I'm I'm trying to expand on what he's done. So uh, if you're interested, he any work that he has, any books, because he has a lot of different self help books available um, and treatment guides. I would highly recommend him. But uh, I'm going to be biased and say I think break binge eating has all the information that <laughs> that you need for the moment. And uh, it, the good thing about that our, uh, our site is that you know, we link off to other reputable uh, resources as well. So uh, so I think you can be safe to assume that whatever is cited in in our website is is um, is good quality evidence, and it's not someone promoting nutrients for anorexia nervosa, for example. <laughs> Amazing, Jake. I'll make sure that's all linked below. Uh, I'm definitely going to be checking that stuff out more, and I highly recommend everyone else does because I think if they've listened this far, they're definitely that interested. They should definitely go check it out and everything. So, yeah, I want to say a massive thank you again, Jake, for coming on. Um, and yeah, uh, thanks everyone for listening. Yes, thank you, Steve. I appreciate it, and um, yeah, it's it's been great, and you're doing great stuff. Thank you. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another a really cool community for people within our little niche. It's going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.